Good morning, everyone. I'm very excited to get the opportunity to share with you guys this morning. I really like it when Matt and Nick teach, but I have basketball on the bench syndrome, and I just want to be back in the game. Uh, and I'm glad to be here this morning. We're going to finish off a series that we've called House Rules, How to Live Together as Christians. We've been moving through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth known as 2 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible this morning, you can open it up to chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, you'll find one nearby in the back of the pew. I'd encourage you to go ahead and crack it open. If you're not familiar with the layout of it, you can use the index in the front to find the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. In one of C.S. Lewis's works, known as The Great Divorce, he paints a picture of hell as a place that's effectively, it's, it's known as the gray town, and it's, it's got houses, it's got streets, it's got cafes just like ours does, but he says that it's perpetually getting larger, perpetually spreading, not, not just because new people are moving in, um, but because relationships are breaking down, and there's enough room that it's easy enough to just pack up and move another house away. And so over time, people just spread out until there's miles of distance between every individual. And I think he's on to something, uh, one of the, the worst parts of the human condition, which is that relationships go wrong. And then, and then what, right? And what happens next? In the Bible, we can see this all the way back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, you have man created. It's not good for man to be alone. God makes out of his own side a woman. And the first words out of Adam's mouth as he sees this woman is, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. It's intimacy. It's closeness. And then sin enters the picture. They both eat of the tree. And what does he say when he's asked, did you eat of the tree? He says, the woman. What could be more non-intimate than that? What could express more of a breakdown in relationship? Where one was embracing and, and closeness, the other is blaming, and it's objectification. It's just the woman that you gave me, right? There's a distance there. And, and to be honest, this is not like, hey, you guys need to stop treating sin so seriously. This is what sin does. Sin creates death. Sin, is, sin leads to every time, on every occasion, separation. And so what Lewis is picturing in this picture of a constantly spreading and isolating hell is something that we get a foretaste of in our life all the time. Just think of the roster. Think of the list of the people you used to be close to. Think of the places where, uh, where the bomb has gone off in your life. And maybe, maybe it wasn't all-out war. Maybe it's just a cold war where there's just this subtext now to your relationship. And there's this agreement that's not so much a peace agreement as a non-hostility agreement, but there's really no relationship there. What's profound is the boundaries and borders. That's what sin does in our life. Now, we come from a church tradition as Americans uh, that is steeped in denominationalism, and it's worth recognizing that denominationalism is basically another word for division right? That there were churches, and those churches split, and those churches split, and those churches split, and in some cases, all they did was add another adjective, and so now they're the first apostolic missionary Baptist church, right? Every one of those adjectives is to distinguish themselves from someone else. At the root of that, I promise you, consistently, is some form of sin. So what is it in our lives that deals with this? Because I want you to recognize that although the problem in the Bible is sin which leads to division, the solution clearly leads to unification. This is an undeniable truth of what God is doing. He's not just saving individuals. Heaven uh, is not all of us on our, you know, 100-acre piece of land never to be disturbed by our neighbors again. 
right? When you look at John's picture of it in the book of Revelation, you find a massive city where people dwell together in unity. Listen to how Paul puts it a little bit later in 2 Corinthians. He says this in chapter 5. He says in chapter 5, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The ministry that we've been given, according to Paul, is the ministry of reconciliation. What we've been called to as a church is to be the body of Christ. So what's to happen, or what's to keep the body from being fragmented? Constant amputees until we're just a different body part in each box, in its own isolation. Going from a church of thousands to a thousand churches of one. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the greatest unifying tool in a Christian's toolbox, and the reason is because even for Christians, sin is inevitable. Sin happens. I don't know if you've seen it on a bumper sticker. It'd be an appropriate one. What's more important is what happens next. What we're looking at this morning in 2 Corinthians is Paul dealing the cleanup of a massive sin and division issue. You see, Paul had planted this church in Corinth and had come for an unannounced visit and been directly opposed and attacked by a member in the congregation. And the rest of the congregation just ate it up, took its side. Even those who may have been on Paul's side said nothing and just watched as this man who lovingly and sacrificially had given everything to this church was denied and torn down, and he left quietly in the night. He then wrote a letter trying to shake them to their senses, remind them of the relationship, call them to do the right thing. And now, on the other end of this, he's trying to clean everything up. He's trying to restore relationships. In fact, the last few weeks, if we've been looking at these house rules, they've all been based on how Paul handles himself in the midst of this mess. So the first thing we saw was that, uh, that Paul points to himself as being faithful, that he had been consistent in his actions, that there was no duplicity with him, that he had done everything with sincerity and simplicity. And the second thing we saw last week uh, was, was that he had um, intentionally gone about dealing with other people's sin in a way that did no harm, in a way that sought to recover. And so it wasn't a counterattack. It was surgery. It was for their sake. It was intentional. This final one we look at has to do with forgiveness. So read his words with me. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment of the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs." Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Let's pray. Father, you have called us to a ministry of reconciliation. You have called us to be members of one body, saved by one Savior, 
baptized in one baptism, filled with one spirit. And yet we know that our own shortcomings, our own sinful nature, our own wrongful actions get in the way and cause division. We thank you this morning that you have given us the gift of forgiveness, this salve that heals the body. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to apply it, even in the greatest of cases, and that the church would be full of testimonies of repentance and reconciliation and restoration, that we would be able to show the world that your death was sufficient for all sin and that forgiveness can be offered freely and that the division that's caused by sin can be restored and put right. We ask this in your name. Amen. In summary, what Paul asked the church to do here in Corinth is to take this man that they have removed from the congregation and restore him. Now, it may be that the person that Paul is talking about here is the same one that we read about back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is rebuking the church because in their congregation, within their membership, is a man who is currently living with his stepmother sexually. And he says, even the Gentiles, even non-Christians, even pagans look at that and go, that's not right. And he says, and yet you celebrate it as an obvious, uh, you know, expression of your tolerance and, and of the freedom we have in Christ. He says, it should not be so. He says, you need to remove that person from the church. In fact, he puts it in very strong terms. Surrender his body to the devil so that his soul might be saved. Okay? He calls for church discipline. What we're seeing here is the other side of that coin, the restoration after church discipline. But it doesn't seem like this is the same guy. And the reason is what he says in verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure not to put it severely to all of you. That sets this statement that he's about to make about restoring the sinner part of the context of this conflict we've been looking at between Paul and the Corinthian church. So like I said, most likely this is the leader of the upriser when Paul was there. And part of the severe letter that he wrote that we don't have that's referred to throughout this book uh, was calling for them to do the right thing and remove him. Okay. Now, I want you to recognize that this sort of church discipline, removal from a church body, is the final line. It's the last defense. It's not where... Uh, it's not where dealing with sin begins, it's where it ends in the church. Okay. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 18, where he says, if anyone sins against you, go to them privately and confront them in their sin. If they do not repent, then bring another witness. If they do not respond to that, then three, and if not to that, then take it to the whole church, and if he will not repent, then remove him from the church. Okay. And so there's an escalation here. There's, there's a thing, but that makes this a very good window to look at forgiveness. Because if it applies here, it applies anywhere. Church discipline can be a, an uncomfortable topic in a day and age like ours. In fact, when I've already told you that we strive for unity and reconciliation, that that's part of the design of how God has built the church and what he's doing in the world, it can even seem out of place and incongruent. This is made even worse by the fact that many of us have witnessed poor expressions of this that have made us very aware of how easy these things are to abuse. There's a tendency to go, how is this any different that the, than the denominationalism and the division that's being talked about? Here are the things you have to understand. First off, this type of church discipline is effectively trying to demonstrate externally what's already true internally. Okay. When you choose to live in something incongruent with the Christian life, it already creates division. It already brings death. But as you participate in the body of Christ and experience the fringe benefits of being of this community, you can forget the reality of that division. 
When he says, hand his body over to Satan so that his soul might be saved, it's a wake-up call that's being asked for. Help him to understand the seriousness of his condition so that he actually deals with it and repents, okay? That's the goal. Second, the goal is always restoration. Like I said, the division is already there, but the only way to fix it is not to ignore it, not to downplay it, but for it to be repented of, for it to be dealt with, and then the goal is restoration. And so this idea of excommunication is final and ultimate and permanent is non-existent in the Bible. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is to set things right. The surgery is drastic, but the goal is health for the body, including this member, okay? Um, the third thing we have to understand is that for both the body and for this person, and this is inferred from the last two things I said, this is good. I want you to think about what happened in Virginia this weekend. As I was looking at these pictures from Friday night of these torch-lit protests and all of these angry young white men not hidden behind hoods, identifying publicly with uh, positions of racism and nationalism, you know what the first thing I thought of was? It seems so distant for us, but there are pastors in churches in Virginia who looked at those pictures and went, there's one of my deacons. There's one of the people who's a member in my church. Listen, those two positions, nationalism and racism, aligning yourself with white supremacy and the gospel are in incompatible. The book of Galatians is a letter Paul is writing to a church where a certain faction has come in and said, hey, Paul pre preached the right thing. Jesus is the Messiah, but you also need to be more Jewish. You also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep all of the kosher laws. You need to be a Jew to receive a Jewish Messiah. And Paul responds, and he opens the letter in this way. He says, let me tell you what. If anyone preaches to you another gospel, let them be damned to hell. That's how he opens the letter. But if you go looking for another gospel, you won't find it. What is the other gospel? The other gospel is Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and Judaism. The catechism that Nick Short shared this morning said, can we boast or find our salvation in anything but Christ alone? And the answer was no. That includes Jesus and your race or your nationality. Honestly, Something's wrong with your theology if you can't even get past the gate of John 3.16 that for God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so what's the right and proper thing to be done? We can't do it from a distance. We can't do it from here. It doesn't necessarily help that situation with those men to excommunicate them on our behalf. We have no relationship there. That division needs to be presented. And as a side note, these issues, ones of intolerance, because that's one place I would say that we're comfortable as a culture with dealing these things. The one thing we're intolerant of is intolerance. But listen to the list that Paul gives as he's talking about how these things should play out in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world, but now I'm not writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Now he adds a very important point there. He says, I'm not telling you not to associate with people who live in incongruent lifestyles with Christianity who are not Christians. He says, you shouldn't live in a, in a purifying and separatist mentality where it's like, I'm going to stay away from all of these horrible sinners. No, the concern here is people who identify as Christians and don't live with, in Paul's words, in step with the gospel. That's where this applies. And then second, 
Notice that effectively, by painting it broadly here and referring not just to sexual immorality, but also to greed or to swindling or to lying or to idolatry, basically he's saying any lifestyle of unrepentant sin where you say, I am both a lover and follower of Jesus and this is okay. That's where this line is to be drawn. And remember, the front line of this is not, hey, fix your life or you're out of the church. The front line is, as an individual, privately coming to them and sharing your concern in your heart, right? There, these things have to be kept in mind if we're going to understand this. And so, the goal, once again, is so that those who have chosen this life would see it for what it really is, death and destruction, that they would feel the weight of that and that they would turn away from it and be restored to the church. But that's the second half. What if, as we would hope, pastors tuned in, saw those pictures, saw those men, confronted them, and they came to the church and said, you were right. This is incompatible. I was in sin, and I repent of it. Please forgive me. There are always, always, always going to be certain sins and certain specific sins against us that we feel are a bridge too far, unforgivable. Do you understand why Paul would have felt that way? Not only did whoever this person, who notice he doesn't name here, this guy is not listed on the roster of people who stood against the Apostle Paul by name. Not only did he stand against the authority of one that Jesus had personally chosen to proclaim the gospel and the one who had planted that church, but on top of that, Paul's biggest concern that he's expressed over and over again is the health of this church. This guy hasn't put Paul's authority at risk. He's put the church at risk. Either Jesus' death is so sufficient that all sins can be forgiven or it's not sufficient at all. So with those things in mind, let's look at what he says. First, verse 5 again. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. The first thing he says is, I don't want you to do this on my behalf. I didn't ask you to remove them because it was a threat to me. He says, it was problematic for you. The pain was it was causing was you. Any separation in the body hurts the body. He goes on and he says in verse 6, for such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Okay, what is he talking about here? He's talking about what Paul called for in 1 Corinthians 5 when he said that the whole church should remove the brother, should remove the sister. The punishment by the majority is that the Many of the church have removed the one. Now, I think it's worth pointing out here that he says that that punishment is sufficient. Because here's the primary way we react to other people's sins, specifically other people's sins against us. We react in kind. We respond. We find uh, ways to get our vengeance. Uh, and what he points out here is that when it comes to dealing with other people's sin, the only, the final echelon of what it should look like in the church is separation. This excommunication. He says that's sufficient. I think that's important. But more importantly, when he calls for forgiveness here, because that's what he's about to say, verse 7, so you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him. He gives us a bunch of reasons, and I want to look at each one in turn. And the first one, I want you to notice, verse 7 begins with the word so. So you should rather turn and forgive him. Why? Because this punishment of the majority is enough. Okay. The, the first thing that we have to own up to in, uh, in forgiveness uh, is that that the goal is not to make them pay for their sins. In fact, as a side note, this is what forgiveness means. One of the ways that the Bible talks about sin is in terms of debt. It uses a financial metaphor. Okay. 
So here's an illustration of what forgiveness looks like that I've found to be helpful. Imagine somebody comes into your house and they knock over your lamp. Forgiveness means either you live without light or you buy yourself a new lamp. Okay? If they pay for the lamp, that's not what forgiveness is. Now, they may offer to do so. That's where the metaphor breaks down. But when the Bible talks about forgiveness, it means no longer holding them accountable consequentially for their sin. That's what forgiveness means. It's a forgiveness of debt. It's wiping it away and saying, in fact, side note, forgiveness almost always means that you bear the cost of someone else's sin. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, that's probably not surprising because that is Jesus Christ. How is it that God was able to forgive us? Not verbally, not by looking askant at our sin and just saying, I'm just going to pretend that's not there. No, taking it on his own shoulders and serving the punishment that we deserve. And so forgiveness basically means no longer requiring things to be set right in terms of consequence, no longer requiring the, the debt to be repaid, but forgiving it. Now, I feel like it's worth making a side note here. Does that mean that we should put ourselves back in places of abuse? Of course not. Just because there's forgiveness doesn't mean the relationship is fully rebuilt. The trust is reinstated. But forgiveness, first and foremost, is a vertical thing. We'll come back to this later. It has to do with remembering the fact that God is the judge and you are not. But notice what he says second. He says, not only should we forgive and comfort him because the, this punishment is enough, but also forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He says, if you don't, there's a risk that he could be crushed. As I told you, the goal in this is not merely to keep the church pure, although that's a clear idea. Paul says, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that sin that in, that's being uh, not dealt with in the church has a tendency to spread and to grow? But also for the sake of the sinner, for the sake of the one. When we seek to forgive in our relationships, it's not merely just because that's a good thing, it's because it brings health to the other person. Okay? It's an act of love and so he says, if we don't do that, there's a risk that they might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, you have experienced this to some degree personally. There have been decisions you've made, actions you took, behaviors you manifested that led to consequences and caused separation. Like I said, all of us have that roster of broken relationships, a trail of dead that follows behind us. That stuff weighs heavenly, heavily, doesn't it? You feel the weight of that. You start to question, you know, if, if you can ever have a good relationship again with anyone. You feel the weight of that. The, the thing is, the gospel is so grand and so great, John says it this way, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse of all unrighteousness. But that's a hard thing to swallow, isn't it? We still feel the weight of the consequences of our own sin. We still despair and we go, yeah, well, maybe for other people, but not for me. Maybe in other circumstances, but not this one. We still feel locked in the prisons of our own punishment. In fact, this is why the Bible calls us to confess our sins to one another. Why? Because then somebody can look you in the eye and as an expression of the body of Christ say you were forgiven. Sometimes we need to feel the weight of that forgiveness to counteract the weight of our guilt. And so he says, if you don't reach out and comfort him now that he's mourning, now that he's repentant, then he might just go on mourning. He might just go on in isolation. He might, um, you know, when he says overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, the word for overwhelmed is drowned. He might just drown his, in his own sorrow. He might be swallowed whole in it. He says, verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. You see that word reaffirm? First off, just a side note, church discipline doesn't work where the church isn't being the church. If there's no love and fellowship, 
then church discipline is not church discipline. This sort of response to sin only works in the context where the person knows that you love them and have a track record, a proven track record that proves it, that demonstrates it. But the point here is to reaffirm the love. Now, notice it's reaffirm, not to love him afresh, not to love him again. Church discipline should be an act of love. When you confront people in their sin, it has to be on their behalf, an act of love. But when there's repentance, that love needs to be reaffirmed. He says, I beg you to reaffirm your love to him. And then he gives us another reason. Verse 9, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything. He puts it in the context of obedience. Now for Paul, when he says, this is why I wrote, he's referring again to that severe letter. He says, I wrote you and called you to do this with this man to test your obedience. But by putting here and reminding it in the context of forgiveness, he's also testing their obedience. And here's something we have to own up to. Forgiving other people is an act of obedience. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, the one that many of you know and have memorized, once he finishes the prayer, he has only one place where he feels need of clarification. You see, in the middle of the prayer is this line, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are debted to us. Forgive those who are trespasses as those who have trespassed against us are forgiven, right? So he adds at the end of his prayer, for if you forgive anyone, you shall be forgiven. And if you do not forgive them, then you shall not be forgiven. Now it's interesting because you look at that and you go, wait a minute, I thought the gospel message was that we just receive Jesus freely by faith alone. Doesn't that sound like we also have to forgive other people? Isn't that an extra and added condition? The idea there is not so much, not so much that if you don't forgive, you will not be forgiven. It's if you don't forgive, you might not have been forgiven yet. It's that forgiven people forgive people. But that's another sermon. What I want to draw out right now is the obvious idea of it, that unforgiveness is a sin. It's an act of obedience to forgive other people. And here, let's talk about the, the two parts that go into forgiveness, a vertical and a horizontal. Okay, the first thing is, when someone sins against you, whether they repent or not, there's an aspect of forgiveness that is between you and God. And it's necessary. You have to deal with that sin just between you and God, and there is an aspect of that that we call forgiveness. Right? Refusing to be judge, jury, and executioner. In Romans 13, Paul quotes the Old Testament and reminds us that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Justice is in his hands. We're not to be vigilantes. And so there's this vertical aspect that has to happen. But to put it a different way, that just means willing for the relationship to be restored if there is repentance. And this is not as easy as it sounds. Because what happens? If we get bitter, then they come and they ask and we go, but you've got to prove to me that you're repentant, right? You've got to show, you've got to demonstrate. And whatever it is, the, the marker, the goal line always shifts, right? And so there's this thing that has to just dislocate from other people's sins first and foremost that we call forgiveness. But the goal of forgiveness is not merely that, but restoration, as I mentioned. So there's a horizontal part. If they come and they ask for forgiveness, if they repent, then forgive them. Jesus knows this is hard. This is why he tells his disciples, if a man comes to you seven times in a day and says, forgive me, forgive him. I don't know exactly what that means, but surely we understand what it can't mean. It can't mean that things are tremendously conditional. Right? What he's trying to emphasize is that we should be swift to forgive, and that's what Paul is calling the church to be here for these people. He says uh, that this is an act of obedience. But here's how this works. Forgiveness can never be, and is never, and rarely even fakes as an expression of self-righteousness. Forgiveness is not something that those who don't need forgiveness do. 
as it's portrayed by Jesus, forgiveness is something that forgiven people do. That's why he tells this parable. And he says, there were two men, one of them owed uh, an extensive debt of millions of dollars to his master. And his master said, that's it, you haven't paid, I'm going to throw you in debtor's prison. He says, no, 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 I'll work it out, just give me a little bit more time, I've got a plan. And he says, you know what, never mind, it's forgiven. The whole debt is wiped away. And then he goes to his neighbor who, who owes him a couple of bucks and he throttles him by the neck and says, when are you going to repay me? And he says, I've got a plan to repay you, just like the other man did. And he says, no way, and he throws him in debtor's prison. And the master hears about it and he says, wait a minute, did I not just forgive you of millions of dollars and now you're holding this guy to toe the line with a couple of dollars? That's the incongruence. The only way we can go through what's being talked about here is to be fully aware of not merely our own shortcomings, but the cost that God paid to set it right. The fact that the sins in your own life were so serious that God had to become a man, take them upon his shoulders and die in your place. And that he freely and fully offers you forgiveness. One of the things that recognizing that does is it makes forgiveness something you want to share. Because it's just that. But it's also an act of obedience. We have been called to and given the ministry of reconciliation. We cannot hold on to someone else's sins and demand retribution and then take grace and salvation as a free gift from God. Then we fall into the same camp as those white nationalists or the Judaizers in the book of Galatians. We say we're forgiven because of God's free gift and the fact that I've never done this heinous thing. Right? We make some sort of demarcation where we might just be slightly more righteous than them, but it's enough to actually grant forgiveness. That's not how it works. And so it's an act of obedience. And this is important because sometimes, sometimes we can't find it in ourselves to forgive. And I actually don't think that's very surprising. The Christian life God has called us to is inherently supernatural. Paul says, for I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. I'm just going to assume that that box is broad enough to include forgiveness. There's a story about Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom and her sister found themselves in Ravensbrück, a concentration camp. And not only did she watch her sister die in that concentration camp, but she, he watched, she watched her sister continue to hold on to her Christian faith in a way that changed Corrie's life. And so when the war was over, when Corey had survived, she began going around Germany preaching a message of God's love and forgiveness. And one night as she was preaching after she had finished sharing this message, a man came up and she recognized him as one of the guards at Ravensbrück, one of the men who had held her clothes while they were counting her jewelry and putting her into a uniform, one of the men who had been around while her sister went through this excruciating ordeal and died. And he came up with a big smile on his face and he said, Fraulein, it is so great that God can forgive someone like me. And she recognized that he didn't recognize her. And he stuck out his hand. And she said, there was nothing in me. This is what she says in her memoir. There's nothing, there was nothing in me that could reach out and take that hand. And I prayed and I said, God, there is no love for this man in my heart. Please love him for me. I don't think it's always this way, but it was for Corey. She said it was experiential. She felt warmth overwhelm her body, and she pulled the man into an embrace, and they wept together. There's nothing normal or natural about that. Augustine famously said, God, command what you will, and then enable what you command. That's the Christian life. What we're talking about here is not just something you have to do to prove that you're worthy of salvation. It's a place where God miraculously is making you his workmanship. Notice how he continues in verse 10. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. What he told them about this other man in 1 Corinthians was that his vote on them being removed from the church could be given at a distance. He says, those who you eject from the church, I eject from the church. 
He says, you don't need me as an apostle to do it. In the same way, he gives the other side. He says, I don't have to be present for you to restore this man. I know that you think the insult was primarily against me, but you don't need my permission to bring him back in the church. If you forgive, then I forgive. But I want you to notice that it says here, for your sake in the presence of Christ. The word there for presence literally means in the face of Christ. What I'm saying here is that Paul sees forgiveness as something we do privately. Not merely socially, although that's clearly involved. It's something that he's already done between him and Jesus in his prayer life. Forgiveness has been dealt with at a distance. As I said earlier, there's these two parts to forgiveness, and you can never do the second until you do the first. But notice the last reason he gives here, verse 11. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. The last reason he gives here is that we need to forgive so that Satan doesn't take advantage of the situation. How does this work? Okay. See, here's, here's the thing. The closest in the modern world we get to, to thinking about the devil is blaming him for our problems. And so the devil made me do it is the way that we think about things. That I have no control, it's just that's not how the Bible talks about it. The act of sin is yours. But Satan is involved in before and after, okay? And maybe if you're a Christian, you understand the before. You recognize that there is temptation going on. You see the picture in the garden, and it's not Adam and Eve having a personal argument and going, you know what, maybe it would be good to eat of this fruit. No, it's this tempter who says, hey, I've got an idea I'd like to talk to you about, right? But there's also the aftermath. There's also what happens after you sin. One of the names that the Bible gives the devil is the accuser, right? The idea here is in the courtroom, here you are in the dock, and it's the devil dressed to the nines as the prosecuting attorney who says, give him the full weight of the law. This person has, you know, defamed your name, has sinned against those you have made, uh, you know, has fallen short of your own commands. Do something about it. It says in Romans chapter 8 that for the Christian there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet we look in ourselves after we screw up and what do we find? Condemnation. That's the work of the devil. And so when it says, lest he be drowned in sorrow, here that's one of the things that the devil does. God goes, okay, great, here's a place where I can pick one off. But another thing it does is it perpetuates division in the church and makes the easy out of confrontation without forgiveness, the easy out of excommunication with no chance of return, the easy out of running in isolation instead of moving towards one another in reconciliation, more common, more easy, more practiced. Jesus said that they, the world, will know we are dis his disciples by our love for one another. Now I hope and I pray that there's times where that's true, but I'll tell you what, the one reason they think we aren't his disciples is by our not love for one another. Where there's unforgiveness, where there's resentment, where there's bitterness, where there's division. What Paul says here is that Satan can take advantage of our sin, use it to perpetuate unhealth, destruction, and division. And he says here, we're not ignorant of his designs. Are you? Do you realize what's at stake when the relationships in the church are broken? When there's sin that needs to be dealt with and you're reluctant to re-engage and seek restoration? This is why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give a foothold to the devil. Okay. It's possible to be angry and do not sin. But I want you to recognize that this saying that we have that time heals all wounds is ridiculous. Not, not just spiritually, physiologically. If you take a fall on a mountain cliff and you've got a big gash on your arm, the worst thing you can do is just sit there, right? Because things get in the wound. They need to be cleansed. 
And your anger can start from a right place, and it can very quickly go corrupt. And Satan can totally put on the leverage and just say, I can't believe they did that. If they really loved you, they would have never, right? And it grows and grows and grows. And then suddenly the recall factor comes in and you start adding up the list of all the other things they've done against you. And so now when you confront, you confront at a full boil with fire and fury, giving them everything they deserve verbally, making sure they feel the weight of how you felt the last few days. Satan is so capable of rubbing salt in the wound. Actually, salt would be a good thing. Of rubbing soil in the wound. Of corrupting this thing, which happens and can actually be to the greater glory of God. It doesn't mean that we should sin abound so that grace can abound. The sin is going to happen. The death is there in the church where we find life, where there should be death. That's the work of God. titled this sermon don't forget to forgive and that's a personal statement because I have an out of sight out of mind problem I can start this process and then because the person isn't around just let it go I don't like the discomfort of trying to set things right and so sometimes there's relationships that are just not restored not because they couldn't be restored but because every day that stands between when it broke and its restoration makes it harder to justify and makes it more awkward to jump back in. When I called my high school girlfriend while I was in college, because I realized how terribly I'd treated her and that I needed to apologize and ask for forgiveness, it is by far top five most awkward conversations I've ever had. The only reason I called her is because I suddenly remembered her phone number, okay? She should have been at college, but she was at home at her parents, uh, you know, doing laundry or something. And so everything fell out, and it was the most awkward conversation. But the thing is, the thing is that girl Michelle and I, we share an eternal destiny. To be honest, I wasn't a Christian at the time, and I did everything I could to default, to destroy and to detour and to ruin that trajectory. But that's the thing. Forgiveness is such a great gift to the church. The death of Jesus is so sufficient that sin can actually be dealt with. And not just obscured or ignored, but actually confronted, repented of, forgiven. I want to ask you a personal question. In fact, let's look at what Paul says next, just to frame this question. Verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Why was he so upset waiting for Titus? Titus is the one who was carrying the response letter from the Corinthians. So he leaves the church, he sits down, he writes this letter, and then he moves on to Troas, and he's hoping that in that time of movement, Titus has made it to the church, received a response, and will meet him there. And it doesn't happen. And it distracts him from ministry. Listen to the words, and remember who's speaking here. This is the Apostle Paul who, as we'll see in the rest of the letter, devoted his life to the proclamation of the gospel all over the world. But what does he say? When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, he looks and he goes, this is a fruitful place. People are responding, but what does he say? He says, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. He walks away from the opportunity because this is more important to him. You see, here's a place that some of us can justify ourselves. We think, well, I know I've got this undealt with relationship, but look at all these other good things that God is doing right now. And I've got a focus here. Are you familiar with the passage in Les Mis 
where Jean Valjean, this man who was a criminal and comes to know Jesus and effectively devotes his life to grace, discovers that another man is being wrongly accused of being Jean Valjean in a standing trial for a death sentence. And he has this tension and he goes, the one versus the many. This man's life, but all of the good work that I'm doing here at home will end if I go and they arrest me. And as he's having this fight, he hails a cab. And then he thinks to himself, you know, maybe, maybe everything is going to be fine and I can just let it be. It's really none of my business. And then a wheel breaks on his carriage and he thinks, oh, maybe this is God interfering. So he hires another carriage. And he keeps moving and he argues with himself till his hand is on the door of the courtroom. And he thinks to himself, I am sure that God has something else for me than to be condemned as a criminal. And yet he still opens the door and he says, I know for a fact that that man is not Jean Valjean because I am he. Priority. For Paul, the reconciliation between him and this church outstripped his heart for ministry. Jesus said something similar. He said, when you come to the altar and you realize that someone has something, to, something, something against you, set aside your gift, go to them and be restored and then bring your offering. Are there places where reconciliation is wanting? Are there places where you've done half of this and not the other? Are there places where you've sinned against people and haven't confessed and asked for forgiveness? Are there relationships, especially within the church, not just our church, but the body of Christ abroad, where you've not applied forgiveness and left the barrier up? It's so easy for us to say, yes, but this is more important. Not to Jesus, it wasn't. Not to Paul, it wasn't. And I'll just, as an aside, point out to you that it is tremendously easy to deceive ourselves, destroy our families and those who actually know us and live in the limelight of some sort of, of you know, ministry fame and think that everything's okay. So, why do we forgive? We forgive because that's the goal. We don't conf confront in sin. We don't deal with other people's sins against us or against others just because we are the, you know, the hammer of God and a voice of justice in the world. No, we're a voice of reconciliation. Why do we forgive? Because we know the weight of guilt and condemnation and we want to alleviate it so that they don't drown in their own sorrow. Why do we forgive? Because we've been commanded to forgive and unforgiveness is a sin. It makes yourself God. It makes yourself the judge, jury, and executioner. Why do we forgive? Because this is one of the devil's greatest tools to defame the church in the name of God and to ruin relationships and separate the body of Christ. And why do we forgive? Because it's a priority even if there's a great opportunity for ministry, even if you've come to worship and we're about to sing songs and you're going to offer your sacrifices of praise to the Lord, first go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then bring your gift at the altar. Don't forget to forgive. Let's pray.